Okay, welcome to drama class here. This is an English class for drama. And I'm going to, our, our outline today is we'll go through the syllabus, we'll go through uh, Greek theater a little bit, um, generally what the, the idea of the class is, uh, some future assignments going forward, uh, and all of that. So I just want to start with an apology. The I know that everybody this morning got three notifications, I think, regarding uh, reading assignments. Um, the They were supposed to have gone out a week ago, but the, the class had been set to private instead of public, which is something I didn't know existed. This is my first time doing this format. So that, that was entirely my mistake. Uh, if you haven't been able to read Oedipus in the last few hours, that, that's fine. We're going to kind of push that stuff to, to Wednesday and Friday. Um, so sorry about that. I think everything is public now, so it should be should be there. The syllabus should be there. The first eight weeks of readings should be there. Uh, but yeah, so just, just to let you know, Oedipus, read that for Wednesday if you haven't read it yet. And we're going to get into that play a little more directly. Okay, one second. Okay, good. Um, next thing, just to let you know in terms of the the class, I'm going to try and record these and, and post them as a, a reference guide for you. I tried it in the first class and it entirely failed. So I'm going to try it again here, uh, try and record it again. So... Just to let you know, I, I am recording in hopes of having something that, that you guys can use. Um, but we'll we'll see how successful that is. All right, so that, that's kind of the initial house cleaning. And then we will go over the, the syllabus alterations needed to, to make up for the fact that Oedipus is moving to Wednesday. All right, um, but now getting into the kind of the meat of the class here. Uh, so the idea of this class is that surprise surprise drama is not something that's on the page it's an event occurrence a, a production right L literally and metaphorically it's it's a whole it, it's it's something in 3d and often english classes unlike theater classes treat drama as a, a two-dimensional project and there's a lot of benefits to treating it as two-dimensional um, one of which is that you you get to analyze fairly complex texts and fairly complex characters and kind of delve deep into the, the literary dimensions of them and hopefully we'll we'll be able to do that in this class however I think what's missing of course is that this is a blueprint for the thing not the thing itself and so what we're going to try and do in this class is watch as many productions of these plays as possible or watch a production of this play when we have the opportunity. Now, due to our particular limitations, that's either not always going to be possible or the best productions aren't going to be possible. Um, the productions that are available through the library that you could stream through the library, I've linked to in, in each uh, in each week. So if you go to the course folder, there should be a link there. The main service Yukon Library uses is Alexander Street. And so that, that'll be the link. Um, and you click there and it should bring up a, a production. However, there are a few productions that, that simply aren't available. Um, I am, while I'm not asking anyone to, to buy any text, all of the plays should also be 
up there by the time you need them. The first eight weeks of reading are already posted because um, you know I want to save you guys money. I don't want you to have to go out and and buy a book you're, that's you know ninety dollars that you don't have to do again. You don't have to read again or, or are going to use again. There are a few films that I, I am asking you to purchase either the the DVD version or streaming just because I, I couldn't get it to you in any other way. Normally we would just watch them in class, but you know, we don't really have that luxury. So if you look at the syllabus on the first page, the under required texts, there's a list of four movies and the date we will be discussing them. Um, so the idea is what get that movie and watch it by that date. Okay, I think um, Ran and Vanya on 42nd Street and Triumph of Love are all streaming. I couldn't find As You Like It streaming anywhere, which considering it's the first one we'll be watching is most inconvenient, but uh, do your best. The, the As You Like It version is the Kenneth Branagh version, so that, that's what you're going to be looking for. Okay, But outside of that, what is going to be posted every week in the content collection for this class is going to be very oftentimes uh, what I'm going to go for is like a conventional and an unconventional version of the play. Again, this isn't always possible. A lot of times we're just going to have to find the, you know one production that is um, that's kind of good enough for for our purposes. But I do want people to start thinking in terms of, in kind of maybe original version of this, how this might have looked when it was first staged, but also an innovative version of these plays or innovative versions of these plays, ways of looking at it that are quite different from what it was staged originally. And our assignments are going to be geared towards that end, towards this original innovative what do we want to call it? A divide, a continuum, a bind, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it, th those kind of ideas. And you could see that we have um, three major assignments and a final. The, the final is going to be kind of a little more traditional, you know, um, uh, comparing text, comparing ideas, discussing a theme, that type of thing. Uh, obviously, take home because there's, there's nothing but the home now. But um, that's that's the idea. The there's also going to be a, a paper, a, a longer paper that is research based. Um, but the other two assignments are going to be a director and actor one. The actor one is you're going to take on a Shakespeare role, a Shakespearean role, either from As You Like It or King Lear, and then do some character work there. We'll go into that a little further as we as we get closer to the due date. Um, but the details of the assignment are attached to the syllabus. The directing assignment, which is going to be due later in the, the semester, is going to ask you to take one of these plays and envision them, to kind of put it on their feet, put it on its feet. In order to help do that, I've included readings from directors Harold Clerman and Peter Brooks. Um, Clerman is a, a little more, it's hard to call Clerman conventional, but it's the first word that comes to mind. And, you know, he's going to be a little bit by by the numbers brooks is known for being one of the kind of the godfathers of experimental theater he worked in england in the 60s his, his most famous place something called marassad uh, which i don't know if anybody knows that but it's you know it's a, a bonkers play um and i'm including readings from from both of these people which we will cover in class in order to think about the third dimension in different ways 
which will hopefully help you with your with your director's project, right? With kind of conceiving of this this play um, on its feet, and so when approaching these works, thinking about them both as literary objects, which is important, it's not to be thrown out. We really need to do that, and we will do that, but also in terms of um, what they look like as active art objects is going to be very important. And so that's going to be the, the goal and the direction of this class. Okay? So that's the, the, the thesis, all that stuff. So stop now. Any questions? Okay, good. So if, if you have questions, just turn on your mic and interrupt me. Often I'm, I'm having, I'm putting documents in front of me, so I, I'm not going to be able to see the screen all the time. So just, you know, be, interrupt me. It's not rude. It's, it's necessary considering what we're doing. All right. Um, now just a little bit of house cleaning, just in terms of, of the mistake I made and how to adjust for it. If we go to the syllabus under weekly readings and viewings, um, you see week one, Greek theater, so obviously Oedipus is not due for today. I'm going to make Oedipus due for 9-2, September 2nd. Um, and then for September 4th, instead of reading Aristotle's Poetics, which I'm positive all of you will hate, instead let's just read Harold Clerman on directing and watch Serbin's The Medea and Electra. All right? And so what we'll do for the Poetics is I will, I'll lecture on it. I'll give you kind of like the bullet points of it. I think that'll be good enough. If you know anything about Aristotle, um, Aristotle didn't write anything. Everything we have from him is bullet points from his students, which makes his books, let's just call them dry. And so I think giving you the bullet points would be will be fine. Um, and so, yeah, I, I will also send out an announcement about that. So, uh, I mean, please write that down or please make note of it, but I'll also announce it officially via Husky CT. Okay. Uh, last thing, a bit of housekeeping in terms of, I haven't put office hours down there because we, we no longer have an office to go to. Um, what I'm going to do instead is kind of open it up to, um, to whenever people need to meet, kind of meet with me. So if you, if you do need to meet with me, email me and we'll set up a meeting. I'm going to, let's try and make it like at least the day before. So if you email me and want to meet in five minutes, that might be a little difficult. I'll do my best, but, uh, you know, I, I can't promise anything. Um, but if you if you want, just email me 24 hours in advance, and then we'll we'll set something up. All right, and then we'll just do it over over this Google Google Meet or Hangout, whatever this thing is called. Okay. So that should be that. Any questions about the the wide outline? Okay, very good. Um, excellent. So other things about the the uh, the syllabus before we get into Greek theater. This is, you know, a theater class or drama. It's supposed to cover, at least as it was described to me, all of drama everywhere from the beginning of time to Hamilton or, or something. Um, that, that I think is impossible. And so I decided not even to try. What we're gonna do is go from the Greeks to Chekhov. Uh, and you know, we're gonna end on Uncle Vanya for, for Anton Chekhov. 
The reason why I'm excluding, for the most part, the 20th century is that the, the 20th century is an era of extreme innovation in the theater. And it's like every five or 10 years, there's this movement that has a kind of an intellectual basis and a, an aesthetic basis that's radically different from what came before. Um, you know, the, the 20th century is extremely fecund in that term. And to be able to talk about Greek theater through Shakespeare, through the 19th century, and also talk about the 20th and 21st century in a way that isn't um, screamingly fast and maybe even uselessly fast, I, I think is not going to happen. So we're going to end a checkoff. Um, if you're interested in modern theater movements, I know modern drama as a class that the English department offers. Um, you know, you could also talk to me about the different things. I, you know, I was involved in theater for a number of years, so there, there's a lot of um, a, a lot of 20th century stuff I, I am interested in. But that's my justification for why we're going from like Greece to. Sorry about that. I have to turn off notification. Um, there we go. That's my justification for why we're going from Greece to, to Russia, right? It's just that's that can at least allow us to touch on major movements. Okay. Another thing, I keep finding things to talk about. Another thing in the, the syllabus you'll notice too is that we're going to be Mostly, it's mostly Western, mostly Western theater, but we are going to be touching on kind of Eastern theater movements um, and, and different things like that. You'll see we'll be doing Kabuki, No, um, Chinese Peking Opera, Balinese theater, Balinese dance, that type of thing. Um, and so, what you end up going to, what you're going to see in in theater, and especially in the 20th century, is a a sort of borrowing of Eastern aesthetics by you know Western theater practitioners um, but on top of that though I think a lot of the, these kind of Eastern theater practices are, are very fascinating they're very interesting you know they're, they're they're great they're wonderful to explore and it should be a, a part of your vocabulary a kind of a, you know some um, non-western theater traditions now obviously we can't do them justice you know it's not an eastern theater class but hopefully it will at least open up um some opportunities for exploration okay so any questions about all of that okay good uh so let's get into greek theater and all that jazz um just before we start, how many people actually have read Oedipus before enrolling in this class? Okay. So Kimberly is, the, I think you're the only one with the video on, so. <laughs> I, okay. You, you could say yes or, or raise your hand. I'm not, uh, good. Okay. Okay, so every, it, most most people? Maybe, maybe not most, maybe five. Okay, good. So the, uh, the justification why we're doing Oedipus, even though it's a staple in the old high school course um, is that it, it is remarkably important for laying the ground for groundwork for what a tragedy is. And 
you know, and so it's important to kind of look at the structure of Oedipus and what Oedipus is doing and see how that resonates um, from here until Chekhov. And when we get to Uncle Vanya and, and other Chekhov pieces that we're concentrating on Uncle Vanya, is that the same dramatic, tragic structure of Oedipus is being played with even by Chekhov, who's writing who, 2,300 years later? Um, and so it's just, it's that important. Uh, however, if we're going to go by my favorite, which I wish we, we could do, but I, I don't know if it's necessarily responsible to do a class called Tom's Favorite Plays, um, would be something like uh, maybe maybe the Bacchae by Euripides. And I'd encourage you to kind of take a look at that. We're going to be looking at that, right? The Medea and the Bacchae uh, on, on film for, or on video rather, for next uh, next class. And that is, that's really exciting. So just to let you know, I know Oedipus has, is the recycled play, um, but there's a reason for it. And don't let that temper your view of all, uh, all Greek drama. It's uh, really varied and really interesting. And what we're going to do for the rest of today is explore it a little bit. That's the button I want. Okay, great. So here we are at Greek theater. Um, I'm, I'm in the slideshow view, so please, if anybody has a question, uh, turn your sound on and interrupt me. Just just interrupt me about anything. Um, and so Greek theater, we, we tend to look at because it is mostly the, the oldest stuff about theater we have. Um, and when we, we see Greek theater, looking at Greek theater from pre-600 B.C., what you're seeing, and we learn this from both Aristotle and Herodotus, is the establishment of something called the dith, the dithram. Um, an aside, we're going to be talking about a number of different cultures, and mispronunciations are, are, are going to happen a lot. So I'm going to do my best, but apologies in advance. Um, and the dithram, this is a, a kind of hymn that's sung by a group in unison, which which uh, celebrates the gods or great men. Often they were used to celebrate Dionysus and sing about change or a change in identity. Now, um, I don't know, how many people know who Dionysus is or was? Okay, but uh, so Dionysus or Bacchus, as, as he's sometimes called, was the god of vital fluids. So that could include kind of um, blood, urine, sweat, wine. Often he's depicted as, you know, holding a, a thing of grapes and eating grapes and drinking. Um, Dionysus was the god of festivity. And so you, you'd see depictions of him and he's kind of partying it up. His followers would kind of enter into a sort of celebratory trance um, and, and very often like tear things and people apart. Part of the legend of Dionysus is that he himself in, in one of these festivals was ripped apart and then reconstituted and, and born again. And so his, uh, his kind of life cycle itself sort of follows the, the life cycle of the crops, right? He's sort of, um, you know, torn apart in, in fall, regrown in spring. Um, you know, a, a lot of cultures have this. I think, uh, uh, you see this in Egyptian culture as well, where the god is ripped apart and then reconstituted. Um, 
And this is these kind of myths and this I this means of celebrating the Dithram is where theater comes from. And so you start to put it together in a in a unified chorus around 600 BC when Arian of Mithina, no, I, I said that wrong, um, began to constitute a chorus, and they would sing together, and this would be presented. This would be this would be part of the festivities. Would be this kind of singing chorus, and so uh, years pass. And when we start to get into the latter part of the, the 6th century, in the 535 to 533 BC time, we start to see the rise of the city of Dionysus festival. And that's when we get people like, uh, we're going to go a little backwards here, we get people like Thespis. And Thespis, was where we get our word thespian, which just is the fancy word and pretentious word for actor. No one in your papers, please use the word thespian to say, to describe actor. It's really annoying. Just say actor. It's so much easier. But anyway, Thespis, a real guy. We don't have any of his work. None of it has survived. Um, but he was really the first to produce theater in this kind of City of Dionysus festival. Um, and what he did was he took the chorus, this kind of choral performance, and he added a prologue and he added speech to it. And so the consequence of that is we now had um, a, a sort of variation in the presentation, right? So we had kind of a beginning and end. It's not just one song, but now there's conversation. There, there's narrative that's... Um, put in response to the song or put alongside and with the song okay um then we see 534 as you can see right there on this the, the slide um you see the first tragedy competition in athens and um and it's exactly what it sounds like the different people who would produce tragedies usually a tetralogy and they would they would compete and you would be awarded first, second, and third prize. Um, and this became known as the Festival of Dionysus. Uh, we covered him being ripped apart. Uh, so four festivals were held each year. Um, the city of Dionysus was the most lavish. It lasted five to seven days. And I think three or four of those days were devoted to watching theater. Um, each playwright submitted a tetralogy consisting of three tragedies and a satyr play. And uh, the three tragedies were generally, um, you know, very sad. They involved royals or gods um, or, or heroes of myth, that type of thing, elevated people, people who are not commoners. But tragedies were not necessarily plays that ended badly. They were plays of seriousness and of regal disposition. Some tragedies ended badly, like the, the main, like, you know, Oedipus. Um, people are dead. Oedipus is sad. He has no eyes. He slept with his mom. These are things we don't like, hopefully. And however, that wasn't always the case. It was actually Aristotle who came along later and said, a tragedy should be something that ends badly, right? It should be something that ends, uh, ends on a downer. Um, but up to that point, the idea of a tragedy wasn't necessarily that. A satyr play, which we'll cover in a second, was kind of a, a, a comic sort of spoofy play that involved 
satyrs, which are kind of half men, half goats. Um, it involved like people with giant phalluses. It was kind of very sexual in in content. We only have one of them that actually survived, but it was sort of the that release from the the weight of the tragedies. Later on, comedy develops, which uh, we'll cover later in this lecture, um, and you can see there at the date, 486. Okay, The inherent ritualistic nature of tragedy is inherent in the name itself. As you can see here, the origin of the word is goat song. Um, and you can imagine why it's called goat song. Goats were things that were sacrificed. This was the thing you did before you sacrificed a goat. And so what's what's lovely about tragedy and about the fact that it's part of a celebration and sacrifice to Dionysus, this god who's, you know, like, you know, the, the god of um, getting drunk, of, of orgies, of life and vitality and, and kind of a richness of experience, all these things, is that the theater, the thing that celebrates him, the thing that's ritualized in his honor, contains both the somber and the, I guess you could call them conservative elements that are true of ritual, and it binds them, it connects them to the uh, the kind of loose, um, vivacious, uh, unbound nature of Dionysian's, Dionysian celebration. Um, and, and theater then, at its birth, at the birth of tragedy, we have in theater something that appears to be a contradiction. We have staid, traditional ritual and unyieldy, um, unbound, I, what do you want to call it? joy celebration uh partying um and so that that's ends up what theater is here at at its origin and even in its name even in the name of tragedy that is it's goat song goat for the kind of the ritualistic conservative thing and song for for all of those elements of theater that are unbound um, and thinking about greek tragedy and and what we're going to be reading and watching in those terms is really interesting and i think theater through a lot of its history is going to have to deal with that contradiction that began in its origin um you know in, in the medieval era there's lots of talk about theater as you know my god is it um should we even be doing this um no we should be doing it in in order to worship god or or mary the mother or jesus um and then with uh, with Shakespeare's day, there's there's theater which has um, which transgresses a lot of norms in Shakespeare's day, but at the same time has to be licensed and allowed by the monarch, and therefore is always pro monarch, whoever the monarch is, Elizabeth or James. Um, you know, we deal with those same things in the Restoration, and we deal with them, you know, even today. And so I think thinking of tragedy in theater as inherently goat song, it's all goat song from here on out, um, might be a, an interesting guiding principle. All right, moving on to the design of the theater. All right, so the design of the theater, th these are fascinating things. And if we have time at the end, I want to look at some photos. If we don't go on online and, and find them, um, the, the theater 
was designed to seat 12 to 15,000 people, which is, yeah, it, it's enormous. Um, 12 to 15,000 people. And the reason for this is theater wasn't just entertainment, even though it was that. It was also an obligation of a citizen of one of these cities. So if you're a, a citizen of Athens, you were obliged to go, which means you had to, you know, be a, a property owning male, but still there, there's a lot of them. And um, you, you were obliged to go and view these things. And so, you know, you, um, they had to have, <laughs> there had to be room for you. Uh, women and slaves also did attend the theater. Uh, they think they sat in the back and I think women and slaves were seated together. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't just the, the citizens who were in attendance, so they, they were obliged. It was kind of everyone. This really was truly a, a social obligation, and a social event. And, um, and yes, yeah, so the location of the theater was incredibly important because I, I don't know how many people here have ever kind of acted on stage or whatnot, but when sound, um, the, the sound, the, how well sound can carry is extremely important. And part of a developing actor is learning how to project your voice so that everybody in the house can hear, uh, which is hard enough in a, you know, in a theater that seats a few hundred people. In a theater that, in a theater that seats 15,000, it's, it's really, really hard, if not impossible. And so these theaters are chosen and built, chosen um, to be built into a kind of mountainous area. And so even though I've never been to Greece, I've been told that if you go into the the orchestra area or the the skein, you know, the, the, the theater area and speak fairly softly, they can hear you all the way in the back because these were chosen in these kind of mountainous places so that uh, voices can carry. Um, and so now looking at the, the different places in this, this diagram here, what you can see right away is the uh, proskinion and the orchestra. The orchestra, which you know, is, is down on the ground and closest to the people, is where the chorus and the chorus leader was and they, they sang, danced, and spoke. Um, they're separated from the, the staged area, the, the proskinion, which is where you know, the actors spoke. So when you had one, two, and actor three coming on stage, they would come on the proskinion, which is where we get our word for proscenium, the, the arch that goes around the theater. Um, and that's where they are. Skin, which is, or skine, which is where we get our word for scene, they were in the back. And that's a, a kind of an architectural feature that looked sort of like the outline of a city or the, the general design of a city. Um, and so the actors would act in front of the skin. It also acted as a place for the actors to come out uh, and a, as a staging area. And so the proskin or the proskinion pro like before or in front of the scenery. So that's where these words come from. And so you could see also in looking at this design, imagining for, for those people who have already read Oedipus, the, how the design of the theater may influence your picturing of the play itself. The orchestra was something and the orchestra leader, the chorus leader is somebody attached from, uh, disattached from 
the the three actors on the stage or the two actors or one actor on the stage they're in a different place they're with the citizens of athens right and so when reading the orchestra or i keep calling them the orchestra excuse me when reading the chorus you can imagine them as what the people of athens saw them as as the voice pieces for the citizenry right the voice pieces for those people who live in the city and the blocking that is the positioning of the actors on the stage mirrors that all right okay oh last thing the mckinney um that's the machine that lowered actors onto the stage we're, we're going to cover that in a second because i don't believe that is used in in oedipus um so now let's talk about the development of greek drama so we initially had as i said before the chorus and you could you know you could all can read 12 to 50 men who represented the citizenry and sang in unison or with a chorus leader what we start to see with oedipus if you remember is the strophe and antistrophe which is the chorus we kind of divide up in two and answer one another okay um here's thespis again good old thespis i think that's thespis that's that's a picture of or a picture of a statue of that guy um he's the initial award winner uh or he won the award in 532 as it says there and he also introduced masks and masking is a very important part of greek theater and a lot of different types of theater so what would be some reasons why uh thespis would introduce masks into greek theater oh okay so yeah w women so if you were going to portray a woman you would you would need a mask i see what you're saying mm -hmm. okay good okay anything else yeah exactly so dionysus is um kind of about changing identity so when like people would um you know it, it was it, it, it's always kind of like described like an acid trip like these people would get into a uh, into a trance following dionysus and like tear things apart they would become different and and that was um you know that was actually part of uh what's his name um arian would, would be uh he would kind of develop mess and and he would imagine uh changing identity that would be a big part of theater is changing identity sure what would be some practical reasons why you would want to wear masks exactly exactly so in in thespis's case he was the first actor to step out of the chorus um and if he had to portray different people then you know you needed a mask to let people know who you were okay good so uh, another thing to think of is the actual theater itself if there is a theater that's fifteen thousand people deep the chances of you seeing a facial expression are uh, essentially null and so the mask demonstrated these kind of these broad facial expressions because no one else could see how this guy was feeling <laughs> um nowadays we might find that kind of silly because you know if, if an actor is a really good actor the um you know the, the person can kind of broadcast their, their emotional state however things are a little more formalized in this part and so the mask can demonstrate the, the kind of emotion there so good so i, I great great responses and thinking both in terms of um 
theory, like this kind of change of identity, how changing identity is actually kind of important to ritual and how we think of theater and how they thought of theater. Um, but also the, the very practical, like we need to know who he's playing and we're too far away for, you know, to, to see. So you need a mask, buddy, you know, that type of thing. Great. Um, moving on here to some of the major playwrights of this kind of high age of Greek tragedy. Um, Aeschylus is important for two reasons. First of all, he's the first writer to add a second actor. So now we have actors who are able to talk to one another. So I don't know how many people in here are, uh, were actors, are actors, or are interested in becoming actors. Um, but if you ever do scene work, which you will if you're an actor, you can thank Aeschylus. He, he invented the second actor so two people can do a scene together. Um, Sophocles adds a third actor. So actor three comes out in one of a number of characters in, in Sophocles' plays. Um, Aeschylus is also important, uh, the second reason being his plays are the oldest that survive. So um, the most famous being the, the Oresteia, which is a trilogy of plays um, about Agamemnon, who was a, a Trojan who's a warrior who went to Troy, defeated the Trojans, came back and was killed by his wife, uh, Clytemestra. And that's another, that's another real canon in, uh, in drama 101. We, we read uh, Agamemnon a lot and it's a great play. Um, so I believe that's the only trilogy that survives. The Oedipus trilogy is actually three plays from three different trilogies. They happen to be all, on the same topic um and then you know over here we have sophocles who uh who added a third character and here we have the the kind of structure of plays laid out um and i did this uh because this is kind of a, a sophocles innovation um who i believe is is the handsome fellow right here on the slide of sophocles and what's interesting about it is what is familiar and what is alien so what, what is, let's start with what's alien. What is different from what we're used to in movies or in theater that you could see in this structure layout? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's weird. Um, th that's kind of the, the chorus stuff, right? So when you read Oedipus, eventually the action stops, the chorus comes out, there's a chorus leader and there's a strophe and an antistrophe. And um, that just means song and counter song. And that's, uh, you know, they, they just kind of sing to each other and comment on the action. So basically, it's like the citizens come out and, and talk about what's going on. Um, you might see Stasimon come back in like reality television, you know, after the housewives are gone and they have the, the after housewives of whatever county come on and, um, you know, and like the uh, like, what is his name? Andy Cohen or, or whatever. Talk about the, you know, the action that happened in the, in the reality show. But outside of that, the Stasimon is is something that really didn't carry forward. What I also found interesting is uh, what does persist. So what are things here that look familiar? OK, yeah, the, the prologue that that's in some things and, and not certainly the episodes. And so the episodes kind of follow a pattern um, where you sort of go from um, least dramatic thing to most dramatic thing. 
right? So there's a, a major action. We deal with the action. Then there's a revelation. And then there's a turning point past which we cannot go. You know, there's a, a the, the tragedy is set in motion, right? And so the play builds to this moment of high tension and explosion. And then there's a quick downward slope towards the conclusion. Um, that kind of structure begins to be established by the Greeks at this time. It's codified by Aristotle in his poetics. He sort of notes this is how this this is how a perfect play should be structured, right? He's really into the ideal play. Aristotle thinks Oedipus is that play. And this is how it should be structured. And I you know, this is how like every movie is is structured pretty much. The action builds to, uh, you know, maybe not necessarily a revelation, but a major occurrence. And then after that major occurrence, which is sort of somewhere in the third act of the movie, the problem is solved. And then we, you know, we wrap up. Right. And we have kind of a, a conclusion that that gets us out of there. You know, like every major Marvel movie has this. M many of these Marvel movies even have big revelations in them. So this is something that sort of, I, I would say, emerges over the course of this period. I don't know if anybody sat down and said, the structure should be this, um, and then did it. It seems to have emerged, and then Aristotle came along, saw what was working in the theater, and wrote it down, and said, please do this, this works really well. Okay. Getting more into it, here's Euripides. Um, you know, he he died relatively young compared to the, the other guys. Um I think he dies before Sophocles, yeah. He died shortly before Sophocles, and, and actually Sophocles mentions Euripides' death, which is, is interesting. But Euripides, um, as I say, he won the, the main award five times. Here are his most famous plays. The two of these that are probably the most famous, uh, that are staged the most, are Medea and uh, the Bacchae. The Bacchae is, is about Dionysus. It's a sick play um you might even say it's it's more gross than uh, grosser than uh, oedipus but you know oedipus is pretty gross so that's uh, that's quite a claim medea is also a fascinating play now before i had mentioned um going back a little bit the mechana the this mechana was like it what it looked like was a um a giant chariot on a crane that was built into the top of the scheme and what it would do is you would pull a lever and the chariot would kind of fly over the stage. Typically, the person who would sit in the chariot would be a person playing a god. And so um, the god would come out and make everything right. This became known as Deus Ex Machina, God out of the machine, um, the machine being the mechana, that thing. Uh, Euripides uses it frequently. He uses it especially in the play Medea. Um, and Aristotle warns against using deus ex machina because he thinks it resolves the conflict too easily. And even playwrights today, <coughs> playwrights and screenwrights, will warn against the deus ex machina, which begins in the 5th century BC in Greece. So this is a very old concept. But it's still a big part of... Um, big part of screenwriting and playwriting today is that if you get into a jam, you throw in a deus ex machina to kind of solve the day or save the day. 
But Euripides' plays are a little more uh, complex than a lot of other plays uh, of Sophocles. They're, they're a little more psychological. They deal with um, they deal with in some cases uh, choice difficult choices, difficult and brutal choices. And I think you guys will find uh, Medea when you get to see scenes from that for this week uh, pretty interesting. We also here have the, the Seder plays. The Seder plays were kind of loose. We only have one that survives. Um, you know, the chorus dressed up with giant fake phalluses, you know, giant fake penises, and run around stage pretending to, to fornicate. Um, and apparently the Greeks just love this. You know, if you need to relax, you just sit down and watch a good Seder play. That kind of bridges into the, the next main genre that was established, which was comedy. Aristophanes was the first kind of great and well-known comedian. Um, his humor is a uh, very ribald course, attacks people personally. Um, you know, uh, also a lot of giant fake phalluses in Aristophanes. The Greeks loved giant fake phalluses. That's their, that nothing made them laugh more than, than that. Um, new comedy later, uh, Comes, comes in the form of Meander. The Romans love Meander. And Meander is much more reserved. He's interested in um, comedy that's corrective, that attacks social manners, attacks vices. Um, and it's also comedy directed towards a, a rising middle class. And, you know, they need to act well and, and act proper if you're going to be, you know, uh, um, have more wealth than your parents did, right? You need to learn how to be part of society. This is a theme that we're going to see, especially in bourgeois drama when we get to the late 17th and throughout the 18th century. So this is a theme and device that starts way back in the, the fourth century with Meander. All right. Um, uh, I will say that uh, Aristophanes also survives even recently as four or five years ago, Aristophanes' Lysistrata uh, was made into a film version by Spike Lee, who had made a, who had made a version of, of the film, uh, excuse me, made a version of the play that dealt more with, with urban violence, you know? And so that was what, uh, so, so that play also endures and that style also endures thousands of years later. All right, and that brings us to time. Wow, we uh, we that that kind of flew for me. Um, so I'll stop now, and I will open this up to you guys. Any questions?